This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of TraumaCast. This is Kevin Pei, your TraumaCast moderator. And our topic today is a little bit off the beaten path. Uh, We're going to be talking about robotic surgery for the acute care surgeon. And we have two exciting experts today who I'm going to let them introduce themselves, uh, Andrea and Ruby. Maybe, Andrea, you go ahead and start introducing yourself to the audience. Great. Thanks uh, for the opportunity and for the invitation, Kevin. Um, So my name is Andrea Pakula. I am a um, trauma-trained surgeon, uh, trauma-critical care-trained surgeon. Um, I'm here at Kern Medical, and I'm the associate director of the surgical ICU. Um, but I'm also a minimally invasive surgeon, and in that the majority of my elective practice is MIS, uh, either laparoscopic or robotic, um, with a focus in bariatric. Um, hello. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Ruby Skinner. I'm a uh, trauma-trained surgeon as well, critical care I'm the um, uh, medical, medical director of the trauma program here and the director of the surgical ICU. Um, my practice, you know, um, I think uh, reflects more of the kind of classic uh, practice these days with a focus of being on acute care surgery, and I have a interest in um, abdominal wall, wall reconstruction. Um, MIS is not a big portion of my practice, but um, I am pursuing um, applying uh, robotics uh, primarily uh, to uh, ab wall reconstruction and uh, ventral hernia repair. Fantastic. Thank, thank you guys so much for joining us. We're really excited to have you. Um, I, I'm really happy that uh, there are two trauma critical care trained surgeons taking on the world of robotics. Uh, because as you know, as trauma surgeons, uh, we have been really proud of our single incision, maximally invasive trauma laparotomy. Um, and so, so it's really exciting to hear that both of you are um, undertaking robotics. Um, Andrea, maybe if I can start with you, I, I'm sure the audience is going to be really curious about your background because you have this combined MIS and trauma critical care background, and that's pretty rare, I think. Yeah, so, you know, I, I um, originally my interest was in trauma and critical care, and I went and I did my fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. And I noticed even there, um, obviously through residency, I did a lot of laparoscopic uh, surgery, but even during my year at Mayo, I noticed that all of the acute care surgery was being uh, approached laparoscopically, which I found you know exciting. Um, and it wasn't just for the, the bread and butter elective general surgery. So when I came in back as faculty here at Curran Medical, um, you know, my goal was obviously to do trauma and critical care, but really to develop um, my elective practice with MIS. And it wasn't until it was we introduced the robot here about a year and a half ago, and I've been doing robotics for about 13 months or so now. Um, and it just seemed like a natural progression to to bring robotics into you know what we were doing. Um, we had a, the bariatric part of it is, is kind of interesting. We had a, um, a bariatric program here, but it was predominantly, predominantly being done open. And so the chair asked that I, uh, you know, if I was interested in that I start taking on some of the bariatric cases, 
because I did a lot of uh, laparoscopic surgery. And so I really dove in and essentially did a fellowship by doing a number of uh, mini fellowships and preceptorships and kind of dove into the um, uh, world of bariatrics and now have been doing bariatrics for three years. Um, but my, uh, you know, my elective practice does anything from bariatrics as well as um, hernia surgery. And again, similar to Ruby, that is my uh, real interest with acute care surgery is abdominal wall reconstruction with the goal of um, here soon we'll be, we'll be doing our first robotic TAR. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've heard a lot about the robotic TAR on the, you know, on the national circuit. Um, have you guys, uh, have you guys, you, you're, so you're saying you haven't done any, but you're, when are you expecting to, you, to do your first? Right. So I actually did my first, uh, so I've done 100 cases now with the robot and have done, you know, have progressed from starting out with cholecystectomy and inguinal hernias and really working my way up with the complex uh, foregut bariatric and now ventral hernias. Um, I actually did my first uh, TAR last week. It was a unilateral TAR on a patient with um, a, cup, a large incisional hernia. Um, my full bilateral is not scheduled yet. I'm waiting for the right patient. This patient actually had had a subcostal incisional hernia, so it just made sense to do the one side. But I've gone through um, uh, a number of courses, and I trained with, um, you know, Yuri Nowitzki, Conrad Balliser, those who have really... Uh, established robotic TAR um, for ab wall reconstruction and did the um, IHC lab, which is the inter uh, International Hernia Collaboration Lab that they put on every year and was selected out of uh, 12 people um, to go ahead and train on TAR. So it was really exciting that it was just a few weeks ago when I was able to apply that um, last week. Um, but the first true TAR I don't have, and I'm just waiting for the right patient to get scheduled. Well, so yeah, so, so it sounds like your center is going to be a, um, a leader in all this. Um, you're one of the few people who've trained, officially trained for this procedure, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there are a number of surgeons, I think, that are doing it, many of whom are in private practice. Um, obviously, um, you know, Dr. Nowitzki and uh, Dr. Belansky and all of the other uh, surgeons who are really big in ab wall reconstruction are starting to introduce robotics, but they also take on some of the very large complex hernias where you really, you know, I don't know that robotic is really the correct application, you know, in that setting. Um, sure. But, yeah, we're hoping to be one of the centers in California as a go-to for minimally invasive um, abdominal wall reconstruction. This uh, this trauma cast is going to give you a lot of business, I'm sure. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Ruby, um, and uh, Andrea, maybe you guys can just... Um, explain to the audience who are not familiar with the TARS, and never mind robotic TARS, but just the TAR procedure in, in general. Okay, yeah. So, you know, the TAR, so at the beginning of abdominal reconstruction back in the 70s and 80s when Ramirez described it was more of an anterior uh, component release or an anterior component separation. And there's been a number of variants since then that have been developed. Um, and what, you know, what I think has been found and clearly supported in the literature is that where is the best place for mesh? And that seems to be hidden from the abdominal viscera somewhere in either the preperitoneal or the retrorectus space. But the goal with, you know, when we do these abdominal wall reconstructions is not only to bring the rectus muscles back to midline to have a dynamic and functional abdominal wall, but also to have a very large piece of mesh pretty much encompassing, um, you know, the entire visceral cavity so that they have that reinforcement. And what uh, Nowitzki has done, and he's the, really the one that um, established the, the TAR, which is the transversus abdominis release, 
And what that does is it allows within the posterior um, or retromuscular plane, you divide, um, you know, get into your retromuscular space, and then you divide the transversus abdominis muscle, and this plane actually goes all the way posteriorly, posteriorly to the psoas muscles. And it allows, again, not only for medialization of those rectus muscles, but you're able to do a complete reinforcement of the visceral sac. And so it goes all the way up to the central tendon of the diaphragm, down into the space of retius, um, if, you know, depending on, of course, the extent of the, the defect, but you're able to cover both myopectineal orifices and um, just get a very large or more than one piece of mesh um, into that space so that you've reconstructed the abdominal wall. Yeah. And, you uh, know, I think it's a... Uh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, Ruby, go I, I think, ahead. Yeah, I think it's a natural uh, progression for, you know, trauma and acute care surgeons to to do these procedures, um, you know, we, we do a lot of these procedures open. I just did a very large uh, uh, case for, uh, from an open abdomen uh, for uh, two years ago um, last week uh, in a patient. And, you know, it allows you to really offer um, patients uh, with complex problems, um, you know, very uh, sturdy repairs, very good repairs. And, you know, the uh, the um, being able to really en envelop the peritoneal sac um, and reinforce, you know, the um, the uh, overlying musculature with mesh um, is um, uh, really a, an ideal situation, um, you know, in 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 the setting of patients with complex abdomens, especially open abdomens. So that that skill set, I think, it's important to master open, um, and you know, the natural progression then is to uh, be able to uh, offer this uh, procedure, you know, in a minimally invasive way. And that's really where robotics, I think, are, are going to uh, make a big difference in the future. Well, let's. Uh, well, let's. Um, actually, Ruby, let me ask you to compare head to head a little bit. What do you foresee? I mean, you have experience doing this open, and you have good results from it. So the right. the um, people who are skeptical in the audience, you know, sell it to them. What What do you think are some of the benefits that you foresee with robotic version of this TAR procedure? Sure, sure. You know, um, well, I, I think that there will always um, be a role in certain cases for, you know, open procedures. Um, but just like with um, uh, any MIS procedures, laparoscopy, um, you know, uh, robotics uh, allows, uh, number one, uh, for you to visualize um, spaces that are, are very difficult to visualize, both, you know, even open and, and definitely laparoscopically, um, but also, it is minimally invasive. The incisions are, you know, smaller. The dissection is the same, um, but length of stay um, is is less. And there's, you know, some limited but evolving data to support that, uh, you know, with these uh, robotic procedures for, you know, selected hernias in cases that it does impact length of stay. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's important, obviously. Um, but the visualization is... Um, uh, it, it, you can't compare the visualization and what you can do with the robotic instruments, uh, both open and laparoscopic. And so I think that's really uh, the key. And Andrea, which part are you using for this particular procedure? Which part are you actually using the robot for? Uh, the entire procedure. So, wow. yeah, so entry is, you know, there. If you're doing a bilateral, which again, typically you would be, it's uh, there's six incisions, three on either side, similarly to how you would do a laparoscopic ventral. Um, you do the one dissection, you know, you get into that. It's it's 
really it, it, it mimics what we do open. It's just you a little bit different uh, uh, you know, viewpoint. And the visualization, though, like she said, is, is so much better. So you get into that retromuscular space on the one side of the hernia. You do that complete dissection all the way down posteriorly and laterally. And then once you've done your dissection on that side, then you place three ports on the opposite side and you do the opposite side. Then you can close your posterior sheath, lay your big piece of mesh, and there's really no issues with getting uh, you know, a large 30 by 30 or anything bigger, than, even bigger than that. Um, within, t within that space, once you've gotten your mesh down, then you close your anterior rectus sheath and you know, lay your drains if you want, secure it however you choose, and, and that's the procedure. Um, it, it does, you know, obviously it takes time and it takes uh, uh, practice. It's, it's definitely important. I mean, they, don't, they won't train you to do the robotic um, procedure until you've done a number of open and are comfortable with the anatomy. Um, sure. But really, once you get down, you know, once you get in there, I mean, you can see the muscle layers, you can see the uh, transversalis. I mean, just the, 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 the imaging is so much better and really a lot easier and way more hemostatic as well because, you know, with the control of the robot, similarly to laparoscopic, you just have, you have more control because you can see better. Well, and I wonder, um, I, you know, in preparation for this trauma cast, I did, a, um, did some literature searching and I, are you guys going to be undertaking in like a multi-center trial to, do, to compare the robotic to the open or how are you guys going to push this and disseminate this once um, your you experience know, gets up there? Right. Um, we, we haven't, we are not currently involved in any um, multi-institutional studies comparing ro the robot to, um, you know, the open approach. I think it's a great, you know, it's a great idea. And what I'd like to do at least once we get some numbers and, and you know, we, we have some patients that we've completed, then we can potentially um, join uh, and work, collaborate with some of the other surgeons who, you know, I've met through all of this who I know that do a lot of these cases. Um, and I think that, you know, as you sort of alluded to, you know, the big, there are a lot of skeptics for robotics, um, even though it is is growing rapidly. I mean, just exponentially becoming more common for inguinal hernia repair, for ventral hernia repair. And I think that if we can uh, do, you know, uh, get some data out there to really show the benefits, then I think it would be, you know, it would be great. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it, we are kind of where we were for laparoscopy um, in the 90s. And, you know, hernia is even um, much uh, more difficult because, you know, really, you've got length of stay, you have, you know, um, uh, things like that, but really the long-term durability um, is, is the issue. And so uh, it's difficult to study some of these techniques long-term um, because, you know, the techniques in many ways have not been standardized. Uh, the TAR, it's not a, it's not a new concept, but um, it's, it's being applied, uh, you know, much more aggressively in, in places where uh, hernias are being done, you know, and hernia centers. But I, I think it's going to take uh, a, a few more years for uh, surgeons, you know, in a more broad sense to uh, master the technique and to apply the technique. And then once that happens, um, then I think, you know, uh, we can get some long-term data about it. With uh, uh, with the tar techniques. Let me uh, let me, and I, I want to hear from both of you. Let me just address the big elephant in the room for the audience, which is, is robotics a, a gimmick? Because last time I was in a national conference and I heard somebody talking about robotics, and the idea was this is for general surgery. This is technology trying to look for a use. 
<laughs> that we are trying to fit it in some way that where we don't really need it. And I don't know what the, the data suggests, whether or not people who are naysayers about robotics or people who don't know how to do robotics, but I just I wonder what um, your opinions are. Uh, maybe let's start with Ruby and then and then go to Andrea. Yeah. Sure. You know, I, I think uh, that's a um, uh, a natural uh, response and a natural reaction, and I think a lot of that is driven by cost or the presumed cost of of robotics. Um, and um, you know, I, I think when robotics was initially applied, um, you know, it made sense uh, to use uh, the technology in parts of the uh, body that were very difficult to get access to, the pelvis, for example. Uh, the urologist, it's the standard, you know, for prostatectomy for the most part. And, you know, it has a widespread application for colorectal, for, you know, dealing with rectal uh, tumors um, and, you know, some foregut and, and cardiothoracic in, um, in certain situations. Um, but, you know, now uh, the technology has changed. Um, you know, the newest version of the robot is uh, very different, much more facile, the XI versus the SI. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it's the application of the technology goes much beyond getting into parts of body cavities that are difficult, difficult to assess. It also has to do with the fact that you're able to do things um, in a way that you can't uh, do um, uh, efficiently uh, with straight stick, a straight stick laparoscopy. And you know, definitely, um, open is uh, open surgery. Really, is um, has uh, application for you know uh, trauma and big cases and emergencies and big ab wall cases. So it's a natural progression in my mind to try to apply technology and to try to do things that are best in the best interest of patients. And if that means um, taking the technology to another level, then I think that. That should be what we all aim for. So I don't think it's a gimmick. I think it's a natural progression of MIS, and it's going to take, um, you know, I, probably another decade um, or maybe a little bit less for it to really uh, become the standard in general surgery. How about you, Andrea? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that Ruby said, but also I think it's done a couple of things. First of all, you know, if you talk to if you talk to robotic surgeons, for the most part, those that are really doing a lot of robotic surgery are MIS surgeons and we're doing straight stick laparoscopy prior to robotics. And we all agree that it is not, you know, it's different from saying we're doing open to laparoscopic. That's obviously a very different type of operation. But going from laparoscopic to robotic, all the robot it does is gives us another instrument. It's just another, you know, it's like asking for the uh, endo stitch rather than doing um, uh, rather than doing, you know, just intracorporeal suturing or something. It's just another instrument that we have to make it a, that much easier. It's also easier on us because you're able to sit. You're not, you know, I mean, especially with the bariatric patients, I, you know, I'm a short, I'm small, and I, I struggle with, with um, some of the bariatric patients given size. Even standing between the legs, it is very taxing physically. And so the robot helps ergonomically with that, aside from all of the, the things with visualization. But what it's also done for those surgeons that aren't laparoscopic surgeons, there are a number of surgeons who, who do open surgery that have never offered a laparoscopic or a minimally invasive inguinal hernia. And, you know, we know from the um, EHS guidelines that have, have recently, you know, come out in the last year or so that 
standard of care now for even a unilateral primary inguinal hernia is minimally invasive approach. So if you can offer that with the robot, because ro robotics is really more intuitive and really mimics what we do open, then I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that, you know, and some, some laparoscopic surgeons will say, well, you're just not that good laparoscopically then if you need the robot. And I disagree with that as well, because you can do both. It's the same operation with just a different instrument. Um, that and that's an interesting segue because uh, let me ask you. So, both of you made this com sort of comment about this natural progression from MIS and and ro uh, going to robotics, and that you're not reinventing the procedure; that you're just getting another tool set. Um, but right. when when robotics first started, I remember when robotics first came out, it was said that you had to have a really strong laparoscopic skill set before you can progress to robotics. For same some of the same rationale that you both have. Um, have talked about, but the last time I actually spoke to a robotics rep, they're saying that they, there's a big push to go direct from open to robotic surgery for those open surgeons who were never really comfortable with a straight stick laparoscopy. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm. I think I perhaps represent that group to a certain extent. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit uh, more senior than Dr. Pakula. And, you know, I trained, um, I did my tr residency training at a time uh, when uh, laparoscopy was, you know, just beginning to take off. Um, you know, certainly lap coles were the standard, but there were situations in my training where the attendings were still training each other. And definitely with advanced lapar laparoscopy, I didn't really get um, a, a great deal of exposure uh, uh, to it during my residency training. And then I went straight into fellowship with, with trauma and critical care. So, you know, I, I came out at a time where I was very comfortable with the standard procedures, lap apis, lap coles, and, you know, um, uh, straightforward ventral hernias. But that, you know, was uh, pretty much kind of the extent of what I would do laparoscopically. And in the interim, I've, you know, been able to push the limit and teach myself, you know, um, uh, how to do more complex procedures. But... Um, Yes, it, it is. It, I think it is intuitive, and it does um, in many ways mimic open surgery that in some, in some instances I'm much more comfortable with, and I have found it uh, to be a very easy progression um, because of that. And so I think, uh, you know, that is an advantage, particularly for those of us, you know, um, who, uh, you know, are trauma and acute care surgeons and who may not do a, a, a lot of elective procedures um, that uh, where we can apply a minimally invasive mi minimally invasive in laparoscopy. That, that's a great point. How about you, Andrea? What do mm -hmm. you think? Is Can you jump from open straight to robotics? Um, you know what? I, I think that um, I think uh, I'm going to answer this in two ways. One, you definitely need to have an understanding of the anatomy. Um, let's talk about, you know, for inguinal hernias, for example. We do open inguinal hernia, let's say you haven't done a, a laparoscopic inguinal, the posterior approach is different, the anatomy is different, and you need to have an understanding of that. But what we're starting to do, um, what we have done here actually is developed a residency surgery, um, or excuse me, a, res a general surgery residency robotic curriculum. Um, we have, a, you know, a very structured curriculum for the residents, have, having gone through the online modules to get certified that way, having gone through workshops um, and, you know, a number of uh, uh, simulation skills and whatnot before getting actually into the operating room with the robotic cases. And 
I think it does two things from open to um, MIS or open to robotic. One, it gives them even a better understanding of the open anatomy, having an understanding of a different approach posteriorly. But, you know, to teach, and we know this from, from when we were taught uh, MIS, to, to go straight to, let's say, intracorporeal suturing and tying can be very difficult with regular laparoscopic instruments. But when they are at least able to get some of those basic principles down using the wristed instruments with the robot, now we've taken them into the laparoscopic cases, and I'm much more comfortable having them just do some suturing and whatnot, whether it's bowel or whatever it might be, and they actually are better. You know, they, they, they get it a little bit more. And I know this has been an argument as well, and this has been a debate as to whether or not robotics can improve a lap, you know, somebody's laparoscopic skills. I think for residents who are training, I think it's very useful. Um, and so they can go from open to robotic, you know, small portions of the procedure, small little tasks. Once they get that, then, you know, they can expand. And then they're also then going to be able to do those same skills laparoscopically if they, you know, if they aren't already or if they aren't comfortable with it already laparoscopically. That's really interesting because what you're saying is that there's a paradigm change from the way when I first learned about robotics is that it's, it was very sequential, you know. You went from open to laparoscopic to robotic, and now right. you're saying everything's right. sort of helping everything else out, you know. They're all sort of complementary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think so because more and more, more and more surgeons are doing robotics. It's becoming more prevalent within training. And obviously, you know, just the way that uh, gallbladders were back in the 80s when Lap Coley first started, and, you know, it was – surgeons teaching surgeons, the residents were kind of on the back burner because, um, you know, people were learning laparoscopy. That's a similar thing, I think, happening now with robotics. But if we can get the residents involved, uh, you know, they need to have some robotic training because I, I agree that in the next, whether it's five or ten years, it's going to become more standard. And the majority of hospitals, rather than the minority of hospitals, will be having a robot. And, you know, patients patients are educated. They they read, and whether they understand the difference between laparoscopic or robotic as far as incisions and things like that, they, you know, people come and request a robotic cholecystectomy or a robotic inguinal hernia or whatever it may be. So I think it's important for the residents to start training now as well. And it's, you know, it's all, they're getting trained in open lap and robotic. And I think that it's all, um, that's just where we're going. Let me ask, what is your fallback if you are unsuccessful during your robotic procedure? Do you, do you then fall back to lap or do you fall back to open? I convert to lap. Um, okay. I will go back to laparoscopic. Um, I will tell you, I had to abort a laparoscopic case and I ended up rescheduling it because I didn't have the robot that day and I was able to complete it robotically um, on a super morbidly obese patient um, that I bent several instruments um, you know, and the trocars, they just weren't strong enough for, for the thickness of her abdominal wall. And I said, well, rather than open, let's give it a try with the robot on another day. And we were able to successfully complete it. Um, but as far as robotic and not being able to complete it, if, if that happens, then I, I go back to laparoscopic uh, before I would open. And similar uh, for you, Ruby? Um, you know, it depends on the case. Um, uh, probably... Uh, in most in most situations, uh, attempt uh, lap uh, or, or or open uh, conversion. Um, I don't have um, as much as experience as far as numbers as Dr. Bakula has, and she's uh, doing much more advanced cases with the foregut surgery. Um, but uh, and, and haven't had to convert. You know, I'm limited to hernias, uh, small hernias, and things like that. And so 
you know, I've been able to accomplish those cases uh, without a conversion. But I think that you have to be, uh, when you take on uh, robotics, it is a new tool. Like uh, Dr. Kula was saying, it's just another tool. You've got to be facile um, with going back and forth, you know, between um, uh, the various uh, approaches. And um, and uh, looking at it that way, I think, makes um, the most sense. I I have to say, no, Andrea, I, that I, was – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no! I was just going to say that even that, even the concept of, even the concept of starting a laparoscopic surgery and saying, you know what, these instruments are not going to work. The traditional thinking has always been, oh, now you got to convert to open. But that that's so right. interesting that you know you're pushing the paradigm, saying, no, we don't have to. We haven't burned any bridges. We're going to just try it robotically next time. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, you know, especially in a morbidly obese patient, the last thing I wanted to do, it wasn't going to make it any easier for me to open her, you know. Right, um, right. And so, and my issue was domain, but the real issue was just the ability to get the instruments where I needed them to go through the abdominal wall without bending them. And, you know, the robotic instruments and the cannula are um, metal um, or titanium, whatever whatever they're made out of, but they're much stronger. So I said, you know, and I told her, I said, I will. We have one shot at this, and if it doesn't work, then you're going to end up with an open, uh, you know, an open uh, operation, which neither of us really wanted to do, but she understood it. So right. um, it was. It, I was very pleased to see that we were able to get it done. Yeah. And I'm, I'm another really... point. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ruby. Oh, I, I said another point. You know, is that. Uh, uh, general surgeons and um, acute care surgeons who don't necessarily do bariatrics are seeing more and more bariatric emergencies. And, you know, these patients come in with perforations, they come in with internal hernias and things like that. And, you know, you, we have to have the skill set to, to operate on these patients. And I think it's very daunting for many surgeons to think to approach some of these cases laparoscopic. And I, I think robotic is just another tool, you know, that may be uh, potentially more um, easier, uh, may be easier to apply in that situation uh, to approach some of these complications. So I think, it, you know, we have to think broadly, more globally about what's happening in, in surgery and what's happening even in surgical emergencies and things that we're going to be faced to handle in the future. And so we've got to have a broad skill set to approach those cases. Uh, great point, Ruby. And in fact, then I want to follow up with that um, by saying, you know, hey, we do a, we do a fair amount of emergency general surgery, right? I mean, even if we're doing elective stuff, we do emergency stuff. I would get laughed out at certain institutions if I said, why don't you warm up that robot for me at three in, three o'clock in the morning? <laughs> you know, let's turn that robot on and bring the robot team. Tell me, what do you guys? I mean, first of all, what would Kern Medical Center say? And two, um, what do you guys think about that? I, I can tell you what Kern Medical Center does say. <laughs> Uh, you know, this is this is another great area, uh, great you know topic of discussion because more and more surgeons are starting to push the envelope with what you know having the robot available 24 hours a day. I absolutely wish that I had that ability, but you know here the issue is we have a we have a um, uh, dedicated team. Okay, so when we when uh, Ruby and I went and did the initial training, we actually brought uh, two of our techs with us. And which is what's recommended by Intuitive, and it, it it's great that 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 we did that because they were the leaders amongst the other techs in order to train them as to how to use the robot. So we have a dedicated team of techs and nurses that are comfortable with the robot, but then there's yeah. a number of others that have never even been in the room. So right. we don't obviously our team is not on call 24 hours a day every day of the week. So we 
very okay, I have been able to push some acute cases um um what? Yeah, some uh, some gallbladders and um, some you know strangulating inguinal hernias, even uh, incarcerated ventral hernias uh, on occasion. But it's only because you know all the stars were aligned and the correct people were here and on call <laughs> on that particular weekend. So more and more surgeons are pushing it because it really has become the go-to for acute cases. I mean, the things that we can do with um, we had a, a very very bad gallbladder. Um, this guy was actually transferred into us. He had a cholecystostomy tube in. He had an intrahepatic abscess. I mean, it was a mess. He had become very unstable at the outside hospital, and they sent him over. And I said, you know, I said, I can do this laparoscopically, sure. I said, but we have the robot. Let me just put the robot in. Let's give it a shot and see how it goes. And I'm telling you, it was the visualization was so much better and so much easier. And then, you know, you also realize with the robot that you control your own camera, you control your own assistant uh, arm, you know, if you're using forearms. Uh, we have the XI here. Um, right. So that also makes the operation a little bit easier because you're not having to, you know, depend on somebody else to show you where you're trying to look or, or retract the way that you need to retract. So um, for acute care surgery, I think surgeon uh, hospitals are going to have to start um, – allowing the robot to be available 24 hours a day. It's not here for us yet. We're we're slowly kind of pushing it as we can. Um, you know, the big question is appendectomy. That is one of the uh, operations that has not really been widely accepted for the robot, though I do know a number of surgeons that are using the robot for appies. Um, and, but, you know, the, and the way that they get around that, because, of, of course, the big issue is always cost, and the way they get around that is, well, we're not stapling. You know, we're we're just suturing. They'll suture the. Uh, they'll put a couple of ties around the base. They'll they'll divide, and then they'll you know maybe put a purse string suture and dunk the dunk the uh, stump of the appendix, which is much cheaper. You know, it's similar to what you would do open. Aside from having the robotic instruments in, I mean, it's actually can be cheaper than laparoscopic uh, if you're stapling and what have you. Oh, that that is interesting. You don't hear a lot about appies and robotics. Right, you don't. I, I truthfully, I haven't done one yet. Um, but <laughs> but you're going to try, I'm sure. Um, hopefully. <laughs> is it uh, so, Ruby? What what do you think? I mean, is this ridiculous to to get to to um, fire up the robot at three o'clock in the morning no, to do an emergency case? And no, I don't. I think it's a it's a matter. You know, again, it's the issue of cost and training. Um, I think that as you know, techniques become more standard. Um, as equipment becomes more standard, as you have, you know, staff um, training, and really the focus is on, you know, doing, um, you know, uh, the the best procedure and 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 getting the best patient outcomes. I think, you know, it 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 won't be ridiculous. Ridiculous. I think it does seem ridiculous in certain institutions, obviously, because of, you know, um, uh, training issues and you know more of just uh, you know, um, and, and uh, perceived cost. And so I think it's just going to take some time as things catch on. Um, you know, Dr. Bakula, to kind of uh, tag on to what she was saying about the application in this for, you know, uh, uh, acute cholecystitis, gallbladders, and appies. You know, uh, we've done uh, a fair amount of gallbladders, and, you know, that is part of the training. You have to start with, you know, more um, uh, common procedures and then graduate up to more advanced procedures. But sure. it, there really is a big advantage um, with a robotic cholecystectomy um, compared to uh, lapar laparoscopic. Um, again, it's all about the visualization. Um, it's about the anatomy. 
Um, you know, the robot has a Firefly technology, which allows you to, you know, um, uh, evaluate the uh, biliary system. Um, and it, I, I think it's going to, um, and I, I think for residency training, um, you know, the gallbladder, the training, the learning curve for lap coli um, can, is pretty steep in residency. And um, at least anecdotally for us, you know, our residents have gotten a, a much better um, appreciation for the biliary anatomy and what you can do um, by doing parts of cholecystectomies, um, you know, as early as our uh, PGY one year. So, you know, I think the uh, applications are, are going to really, really expand what we do. Let's uh, yeah, let's move on to the um, robotics training and credentialing. Um, I know you guys already mentioned that your residents um, are getting very early on exposure to robotics. Um, are they what what PGY level do they have to be for you to feel comfortable? And of course, I know it's you know individual residents, but what level do you feel comfortable saying, "Hey, you sit at the console, and we'll kind of just watch you do it," right. assuming so, you don't have the dual console you know system. Right. No, we right. don't have the dual console. Um, and so what, what we've done is I've – it has been kind of select as far as which residents and, and what year. I've had residents of all years sit at the console, one through five. Um, the junior residents, what I've actually allowed them to do, you know, because one of the things that the robot doesn't have is haptics, and you don't know – how much you're pulling or how much you're, you know, pushing with the robotic instruments because it doesn't give you any tactile feedback. So I'm a little bit hesitant in the in the for the junior residents to start, you know, grabbing onto actual tissue and organs. So the, the senior residents have started with the coles, dissecting out the duct, dissecting out the artery, you know, dividing, uh, dissecting the gallbladder off of the liver bed, while me, you know, standing there really getting on them as to how to how to handle the tissue. With the juniors, as early as first years, I've had them suture. So let's say for a tap, um, I'll either have them close the peritoneal, the peritoneal flap. I've had them suture hernia defects, you know, with me, of course, standing there guiding them as to what to do and not tying and things like that. So I've actually done more suturing for the lower level residents and then more of the dissection for this more senior residents. They are required through the curriculum that we um, – have started, and it's not anything that we developed. You know, there are a number of other uh, um, residency programs who have had these curriculums in place for years. So we, you know, we didn't want to recreate the wheel. But once they've gone through the simulation, the online training, um, and and getting, uh, you know, 90% on various tasks on the simulator, then I get them at the patient bedside, and they start with with instrument uh, placing the cannula and docking. And I make sure that they're comfortable with that before I let them get onto the console. Um, so, you know, they kind of graduate their way up to the, to the console. And then once they show interest and I can see that they're serious about it, then I get them on the console and I say, okay, you know, you're up, start suturing. Or, you know, and I explain and teach them how to be efficient with handling the needle, handling the suture. Um, as I said, it's been very helpful for getting them then laparoscopically, even the junior residents, to start doing some tying and um, suturing uh, laparoscopically. So it just depends on the level, but from an intern level, I'll, I'll allow them to sit on the console and at least do little parts of a case. What about uh, maybe, Ruby, can you speak to how attendings get credentialed at your institution? Sure. Especially since you know, the two if, of you are in the vanguard here. So, <laughs> Right. You know, in, um, anytime you start a robotic program, um, and, and, and I'm sure many people who are listening and you know this, that you, you really need to um, work closely with administration and have a committee. 
And so, you know, we we um, established a robotic committee with all the key stakeholders um, um, involved. You know, obviously some administration representatives and um, uh, different surgeons from various specialties who who do robotics and OR management. Um, and you know, uh, there there are credentialing criteria through Intuitive um, in order to you know um, uh, start using the ro- robot. And then I think it needs to be individualized for um, each institution. You know, for us, um, uh, the uh, the new robotic surgeon, um, whether or not they're experienced or not, when they start to operate here, they have to have five proctored cases. Um, and then they can get credentialed in, you know, cases specific to their specialty. Uh, we monitor um, all of our um, outcomes, our complications. Uh, we meet monthly, um, and we are really looking at things like, you know, times, cost, um, and, uh, you know, have some specific rollout uh, criteria to train um, OR staff. I think it's important to do it in a very structured fashion and, and really um, have the administrators um, involved in the process to really make it successful. Um, and so I think that's the key. Uh, and, you know, Intuitive, I think, has a, a pretty good, has a very good and uh, well-established program as to, you know, how to get started um, in all of the various subspecialties. Andrea, do you have... Uh... No, no, I mean, that's, yeah, that's exactly... Um... How we did it. The the committee was most important, I think, because even introducing new uh, instruments for the robot itself needs to be thought out and making sure that you know the the cases that we're going to be doing are appropriate. And you know, obviously, different parts of the robot are expensive, and so they wanted to make sure that we were going to uh, the cost. You know, uh, the benefit uh, was going to be there for getting bringing in certain um, instruments such as the stapler. You know, we didn't have that right away. Um, and so, you know, yes, the proctored cases, we went, we go and you have to observe. Um, so you go and you go to Sunnyvale or Houston where their, where their, um, main, uh, uh I guess lab is, yeah. um, training center. And, you know, you do the training, you get, you go and you observe a surgeon and you then get proctored and then, you know, you can go on to do so many cases, but there is a tiered, um, level of training through Intuitive as well, where you can go and do more advanced training with, uh, at Sunnyvale before you move on to other types of cases. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, I had gone and I had observed a number of surgeons. So before I started applying it to bariatrics, I went and observed a few surgeons doing the bariatric, uh, you know, with the robot. Um, and, and then, of course, got proctored and did all of the things almost all over again. Um, even though I had been doing a number of cases, I just wanted to make, you know, wanted to make sure that things if there was any question that things were, were going to go well. Um, sure. So. And, and, you know, I think it's important to, it depends on your, your institution, how many, you know, how many people, how many partners you have, but I think it's important to identify one or two people that are going to really kind of take the lead um, and, uh, you know, get the, get the numbers and then, you know, facilitate, um, you know, training um, others. Um, I think if you all start out running, um, it's going to be difficult, but you need to have, you know, at least one person or maybe two people, depending on how large your group is, who are identified as the, the ones who are going to really um, start it off, uh, get numbers, get experience, and then be there to, you know, train the other partners. And that's been our approach here as well. You know, uh, Andrea has really uh, taken the lead, particularly since she's applied it in her bariatrics. So she's really been 
the general surgeon in our group that has really developed the expertise and is and is then you know the one that we go to to facilitate training. Um, we have um, you know uh, two other additional surgeons now who are in the early stages of training who will um, also who are also planning to apply robotics to their practice in our group. I think that's really sound advice because. Uh, especially for acute care programs that are not doing a, a large volume of elective business, right? Elective cases, sure. you want to concentrate right. that experience within a, with a few people as opposed to, you know, spread it over 15 partners, uh, I think right. is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly, uh, yes. I'd like to move to a little bit of a, a touchy subject, but I think it's interesting and worthwhile addressing. You know, earlier we joked, or I joked about us uh, firing up the robot at 3 a.m., but we we all know that uh, oftentimes the acute care or the emergency general surgery services are relegated to the 3 a.m. slot. And so is there is this a phenomenon that there's an institutional prioritization of specialties? And if there is, how do you how do you convince I don't know whoever the powers be that say listen, you know, we should get our time. We're general surgeons and we should get our mm -hmm. time as well. Right. Yeah, I you know, I think that is a phenomenon. I I think that um you know, it's I, I think the acute care surgeons have embraced it to the point where we've developed surgical, you know, hospitalists and models to, you know, kind of encompass that. And, um, you know, I don't know how reasonable that is. Um, I, I think it's it's really institution driven. And um, I think we're at a point now in healthcare uh, where there's so many changes, there's so much uncertainty. And um, I think, um, you know, uh, cost, um, you know, uh, and, you know, the fear of cost uh, really drives a lot of practice. So, you know, I think it's really difficult to, to predict um, the future. But what I will say is that I think um, uh, acute care surgeons have a lot more to offer than doing coles and appies at night. And I think it's important for groups, and and most groups are doing this, um, to really establish, um, you know, their their expertise and their presence. And I think that has come with, you know, the application of ABWAL reconstruction and, um, uh, you know, uh, procedures like that and having individuals within the group who are, you know, um, experts in MIS and, and things like that. And I think once that uh, that changes, and I think it is changing, then I think some of that slot time and, uh, and things like that will change as well. So that's kind yeah, of my long-winded answer to that question. No, but very, very well said because you know sometimes you mm -hmm. get these looks on people's faces. Even so, I do a fair amount of laparoscopic, uh, advanced laparoscopy for our group. In fact, you know for when I first came out of training, um, I was I practiced in Hawaii and I did bariatrics. And but the uh -huh. thing is, my focus was still general acute care surgery. So people thought that was the strangest thing. Um, right. And what odd. what I'm hearing from you, which I think is really really important, is we can do it all. We have the training and expertise to do all of general surgery. I yes. mean, what do you think about that, Andrea? No, I mean, I agree. I, I get the same. Uh, you know, when you kind of asked me when how I got into uh, my background, um, you know, as far as bariatric goes, and it's the same thing. And I get that same question. In fact, when I was when I was training for the for the TAR, the majority of people there are MIS trained bariatric surgeons. And right. so they said, how is it that you're a trauma surgeon and you do, you know, you do so much of this? And I said, well, you know, it's, 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 we're general surgeons. Trauma surgeons are general surgeons. We deal with the same operations as, you know, whether it's open or laparoscopic, depending on when you trained and where you trained. 
And I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, sorry, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the natural it's progression of what, we, of what we do. You know, it also depends on your practice pattern. I mean, private practice is a very different model, you know, than, say, you know, the traditional academic practices. Um, I've had uh, the, for, uh, I've been fortunate to kind of span all types of practices. And, you know, there are a large workforce in the private community that do uh, acute care surgery um, and do trauma and have to be productive and have to, you know, generate uh, RVUs. And that ha was a part of our practice for a while uh, where right. we were primarily RVU-driven. And so the trauma acute care surgeon has to have a niche. You have to have a skill set other than, you know, emergency call. And that's just the reality of what we do. And I think the, you know, the fallout is for us to really embrace uh, advanced laparoscopy to, you know, become bariatric surgeons to uh, do uh, ab wall reconstruction because that's really, um, you know, a, a, a progression, a natural progression of, um, uh, you know, our global skill set as trauma surgeons. And it doesn't yeah, make sense for, you know, acute care surgeons to just do everything open because that's how we were trained for trauma. Yeah. You know, I mean, we that's have right. to... Otherwise, they're not going to, you know, what patient, they're going to save their, you know, they're going to keep their abdominal pain complaints until they're, it's 9 in the morning when the general surgeons are there that do, you know, MIS. So, That's right. I mean, That's right. truthfully, you don't want an open operation just because you're, you're getting your operation at 3 in the morning, and it doesn't right. make sense for us to do that. That's very well said. In fact, don't you guys think we should um, we should incorporate robotics uh, into future acute care surgery fellowships yes, so that all of the future absolutely. fellows graduate just having that skill set? Wouldn't that be fantastic? That would be great. I mean, that they're starting be. to have robotic fellowships and you know introduce mm -hmm. it and incorporate it into MIS fellowships because it's it's accepted at least in the majority of the MIS community that. Robotics is pretty much here to stay, and so I think that it would be great for acute care fellowships and even critical care fellowships because the majority of people who go through critical care fellowships don't just practice critical care. You know, we're doing trauma and we're doing acute care surgery. So to have some uh, component of MIS with the robot, I think would be, you know, is, is actually where it's probably going to end up going in, in the in the future. Yeah, and that's great because I was just about to ask you about future directions. Um, before before we go to future directions, could I just get like a brief answer on what your uh, uh, for each of you to opine why you think the cost of robotics hasn't come down yet? I mean, how come there's not a competitor yet? What do you guys think? Uh, well, I mean, I know that there have been a number of other robots that have um, come about and. Uh, I don't know much about them. I just, uh, having talked about this with other people, and, and Intuitive really, um, are, they have done a good job at, number one, making the robot better. They've come up with, what, three or four now, I think, different versions of the robot until we have the latest now. I think that they've done a good job at finding problems with these other robots as well in order to really monopolize the market. Um, yeah. As far as the cost of the robot, you know, it's going to go down. I mean, there's all all of the different companies are, are starting to try to come up with their own version of of the Da Vinci. Um, right. As far as cost with with the for our cost or the hospital cost with cases, I mean, you know, you do enough cases and you show that your patients are going home after, uh, you know, we'll say a TAR just for instance or an LAR. That's actually probably one of the most beneficial areas within a day. 
versus an open when you know they're going to be here for a minimum of three days. So the robot will eventually pay for itself when you do these cases where it really shows in, in patient satisfaction, patient outcomes, as well as length of stay. But part of the issue with cost is the learning curve. So, I mean, my first unilateral hernia that I did, I was proctored. I did the first, it took me two hours to do a unilateral. I mean, obviously, I was very careful. I was new to the system. But it took me a very long time versus how I do it laparoscopic or even now my robotic inguinal, which is under a half an hour, um, often for a bilateral. So, you know, the, the learning curve is not as steep as it is for uh, laparoscopic, but the timing drops significantly from your first case to your 10th case. And so once enough surgeons are doing enough cases and their time really comes down, because my time, you know, often for now for hernias or for, say, my bariatric cases is pretty much identical skin to skin, even with docking the robot for lap to, uh, uh, compared to the robot. So once we can get our times to where they should be and comparable to laparoscopic, that is also going to take care of the cost. Um, but I do think that we're going to see other robotic platforms coming out with other companies within the next few years. The da Vinci is going to have to drop their, I mean, uh, Intuitive is going to have to drop their, their prices. Sure. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree as well. Yeah. I, I think the... Um, you know the cost issue is um it's it's very difficult to to assess and i've seen you know uh, a few studies and you know of course there's the cost of the robot but then after that um it's i i think you know we've looked at uh trying to compare our procedures head to head our robotic versus lap cholecystectomies for example um and there's really not much difference in the cost maybe the times are are longer with the laparoscopic cases, but that's because also we're doing those cases with residents, um, you know, uh, primarily, um, and so the times are longer. Um, I, I think we, you know, you, it's very difficult to compare two very different procedures, um, and you know, there are learning terms, uh, uh, learning curves, and you know, times and things like that, um, and so. Uh, you know, I, I think the um, cost issue is going to become less of, a, of an issue um, in the future, you know, as the technology just becomes the standard. But that's, you know, a, a certainly a valid argument now. Um, so, guys, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up, and I, I didn't want to end up on the cost issue. So, so maybe if you either of you, uh, both of you, can maybe share a, a brief um, tidbit about things, something you're looking forward to with robotics, uh, maybe to sure. speak to future directions. Sure. Um, I'll start. I will say I want to say this. I you know we as trauma surgeons, you know I think trauma surgeons are are, are some of the uh, most skilled surgeons. Um, you know, for a number of reasons. Number one, um, you know, we we understand uh, uh, anatomy and physiology in a very different way because of the acute nature of what we do. We do a, a wide variety of operations. We do them primarily open, um, in you know, uh, you know, when we're dealing with hemorrhage and things like that, and and we do them well. Um, that skill set to me um, is a natural. Uh, the natural progression of that skill set in an MIS, MIS fashion to me is with, ro with robotics. You know, robotics, um, it is very intuitive. Um, the movements that you do, the ergonomics of the instruments are really mimicking what we do open. And, you know, we can do things in, in various parts of the um, abdominal cavity and, the, um, and, and, 
and and uh, and I think that we we have an inherent understanding of um, anatomy, and so I think uh, as trauma and acute care surgeons, we should embrace the technology because it's really a progression of what we do, and I think that um, that will become more um, you know uh, apparent as the technology becomes more standard, um, and I think that we'll be able to even. Um, uh, further expand, you know, our elective practices and and uh, with uh, uh, the robot as compared to laparoscopy. Ruby, Andrea. Yeah, no, I mean, I I absolutely agree with with what Ruby said, and I think that you know my what is exciting for me with and it, this does go along with the acute care surgeon as uh, you know we are predominantly the people that are taking care of these complex abdominal wall reconstructions as we often cause the, you know, open abdomen, um, uh, you know, and, and deal with these these um, large hernias when these patients return to us. So I'm very excited to apply um, TAR and other types of hernia. Um, I think that there are really every aspect of general surgery, whether it's um, foregut, whether it's hepatobiliary. I mean, I, I, there's some really uh, great hepatobiliary surgeons who are doing some very complex procedures with the use of the robot. I think that any area that you can think of to apply it, um, where it can, you know, where you can potentially apply it. And they're, I mean, they're using it for orthopedics now, which I think is, which is interesting as well. Almost every aspect of surgery is finding a way to apply the robotic platform because it allows for a minimally invasive approach to these operations. It's not even just for the acute care surgeon. And I think that that's really where we're going. Um, and I think it's going to be exciting in 10 years from now when I am, you know, more senior and I can look back to the, you know, the more junior people who are just coming up as well and coming through training with robotics to say that this is standard and every hospital has it. It doesn't matter where you go. So for me, it's just seeing the application being uh, spread across specialties and applied to so many different areas of surgery where we never would have thought that we're doing big complex ab wall reconstructions or, you know, um, chest surgery, liver surgery, all these different types of operations that are being done with, uh, with the use of the robot. That, very well said. That's a great closing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's I a great wanna, closure. Yeah, it's a really, good, really well done. <laughs> I, yeah, uh, it is. Good. <laughs> I want to thank... Uh, I want to... I want to thank both of you for joining us uh, because, you know what, um, it's, uh, it was actually kind of inspirational. It was exciting to hear um, acute care surgeons not doubting ourselves and not saying, well, we do these, we do, we're, we crawl out at 3 o'clock in the morning and we do major X labs and that's all we do. And I think for audience members, it's going to inspire somebody sitting in the audience member saying, you know what, I'm an acute care surgeon and I don't think this is possible. Well, it is possible, and you have two experts um, on our podcast today saying that not only are they doing it, they're doing it really, really well. Um, and I think it's giving us an opportunity to really go back to our roots as general surgeons, first and foremost, um, that we can do all these procedures. So thank you, two for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. It was a wonderful conversation. Absolutely. Thank yeah, you thank again you. for the invitation. Great. And uh, audience members, we look forward to having you join us on our next TraumaCast here at East. Um, Thank you all very much. 
And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Section, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.